1 Corinthians 15 in a moment, but let's pray. Always the right place to begin right there. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this wonderful time of worship we've had this morning. And we continue in our worship as we come around your words. Your word speaks to our hearts. Your word is truth. And God, you call us to listen, to take in, to to then respond to this revelation that we hold in our hands. This is not just an exercise in academia. It's not an exercise in just reading of Scripture. These words are powerful because they come from your mouth. May those words reach our hearts this morning. Challenge us. Renew our thinking. Make your presence very much known and felt here this morning. Through me, your servant, to each one in this room. For your glory and for your honor in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a preacher of the old school, but he speaks as boldly as ever today. He's not very popular, even though the world is his parish. This preacher travels to every part of the globe, and he speaks in every language. This preacher visits the poor. He visits the rich. He preaches to people of every religion, and he preaches to many of no religion. The subject of his sermon is always the same. It never changes. He is an eloquent preacher, and he's able to stir emotion in hearts that are not emotional. He's able to bring tears to eyes that seldom weep. His arguments are beyond refutation. There's no heart that remains untouched by the force of his appeals. What is this preacher's name? His name is death. This preacher shatters life. This preacher disturbs the status quo. Most people hate him. Everybody listens to him. Every tombstone is his pulpit. Every newspaper prints his text. One day you'll be the subject of his sermon, and he will stand at your graveside and preach to others. His name is death. Death is the ultimate tragedy. One statistic you can count on is this, that one out of one people die. It's going to happen. Other than those who are alive... When Jesus returns, eventually we all die. This is a cursed world. Death always wins. No matter how well you take care of yourself, it will win. In a single moment, our life can end. That hits very close to home to some in this room this morning. In the movie Star Trek II, Admiral Kirk and aspiring young starship commander were facing a dangerous and difficult test. And Kirk says to him, he says, how we deal with death, how we deal with death is at least as important as how we deal with life. Why begin an Easter message on this note? Why begin with the end in view? One author of a well-known book wrote an entire chapter on the importance of beginning with the end in mind. And what he meant by that was that before you ever start anything, consider first where you want to end up. 
It's to, it's to, to know your destination before you start any project. It's to know your destination before you start that task or, or a new job. Even in working on this sermon, it was important to consider where I had hoped to end with this message. And yes, it will end. <laughs> Contrary to what you might think. Hopefully you can stay with me to the end. Reminds me of this little poem. The color of my pastor's eyes, in truth, I cannot define. Because when he prays, he closes his, and when he preaches, I close mine. (laughs) Hopefully that's not true for you this morning. Stay with me. Stay with me. There is an end in view. Let me share with you where we're going this morning. The end we are to have in view is that death is not final. Death is not final. That's what Easter is all about. Death is not final. And because of that certain reality, it begs the question, do you know where you're going? There's no more critical question or more urgent question to answer than that right there. To know where you're going, to have an end in view, affects all that you do now in preparation and priorities in your life. Death is not final. That is the significance of Christ's resurrection. And because of that reality, life then has meaning and purpose. Life is not pointless. Let me say it this way. Death is not final and life is not futile. Death is not final and life is not futile. Live in the present with the future in view. We can begin with the end in view. Death is not final, and life is not futile. If you're not there already, turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15 is on page 815, and the red Bible is in front of you. If you want to use that, page 815. We're taking a break from our Philippians study. Actually, I thought we were going to do um, Philippians chapter 3, 17 through chapter 4, verse 1, until 9.30 on Friday morning. I said, we're changing directions. No problem for you. For me, that's another matter. So next week, we will pick up, by the way, in case you're interested, 3.17 through 4.1 and Philippians. It speaks to this. We'll come back to it next time. But chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians is one of the longest chapters we find in the New Testament. It contains 58 verses. If we had the time, we would see how this chapter builds and builds to a crescendo that we come to the final nine verses of the chapter, verses 50 through 58, which is going to be our focus of concentration this morning. But these verses here in 50 through 58 are are, are a climactic song of victory, a kind of, of symphony, if you will, a symphony in three movements. One, the first movement is the great transformation. Second movement is the great triumph. And the third movement is the great therefore. The great transformation, the great triumph, and then the great therefore. Well, let's start with our first movement in this beautiful symphony here, the great transformation. And we'll find that in verse 50 and following in a moment. But in 1 Corinthians 15, 
to set a context here, the Apostle Paul has been arguing for the truth of the resurrection. So go back to verses 3 and 4 of 1 Corinthians 15 just for a moment for context. This is important. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, Paul says, under the guidance and direction of God, he says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And then he goes on to explain his appearances. But then, and speaking of Christ being raised from the dead, he says, if that wasn't true, look down at verse 16, verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, meaning us, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. I translate that. You might as well go home. You might as well find something else to do on Sunday morning. No sense being here if Christ is not raised. But he is. Changes everything. Changes everything. And we now find Paul, as we come to to, to verse 50, Paul soaring on the wings of the reality of resurrection. So he says in verse 50, that's page 850. Verse 50, he says, I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Well, what is that saying? It's saying that these earthly bodies, as we know them, are not fit for the eternal kingdom. These bodies are immortal, sin-stained, decaying, perishable, fragile, weak, and temporary. We need an extreme makeover, an upgrade, an updated, new, and improved version, to say the least. You see, no matter how carefully, careful we are in what we eat and in what we do and not do physically, our life is fragile. Yet today, there is such a preoccupation with our bodies. We're looking for that perfect one, or at least one not like the one we have. I mean, you don't have to show hands here, but how many of you would trade your bodies in right now for a new one? Okay, I'll confess. This body doesn't work. We spend so much of our lives trying to get these bodies to work and to look better. And really, that is fine. We're going to come back to that in a moment. That is fine. But they're still prone to decay and are falling apart every single day. You know, I've shared this before, but it's amazing to me that I can now even hurt myself while sleeping. I wake up in the morning and go, how did I do that? I was sleeping. We're in need of a great transformation. And the skeptics in Paul's day are questioning the physical bodily resurrection of the dead. They seem to think that it's not possible for God to create a new body. Look back with me at verse 35. Verse 35. But someone may ask, how are the dead raised? He's responding to the skeptics here. How are the dead dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? They're saying in a skeptical way. See, they couldn't imagine how a rotted, decayed, stinking bunch of whatever's left in the grave could come together and come out of the grave in some bodily form. People ask me, what about those who are cremated? What about those ashes that are thrown across the sea? 
What about those, those whose bodies are, were blown up by a bomb or, or, or smashed beyond recognition in a wreck? I mean, does God know which knee bone connects to which thigh bone, which connects to which hip bone to get the right guy? Yeah. I mean, how, do, how will God get the dust of one person and distinguish it from the dust of somebody else? Paul would answer, how foolish, verse 36, how foolish, or perhaps even stronger than that, you fool. His answer is sharp because they're not honest doubters but unbelieving skeptics. How does God take the decaying remains, the ashes, the rubble, and create from that a new body? Listen, folks, that's not a problem with God. After all, he created man from dust in the first place, and to dust he will return. You've heard the story. A young boy went to the pastor after the service, and he said, Pastor, you preach once. That God created man out of dust. That's right, you've been listening, the pastor replied. And this morning you spoke that we return to dust. Yes, that's right, you're really listening. Well, pastor then, could you come by our house? Because under my bed something is either coming or going. (laughs) Well, when we're going, when we're going, this old body will become a new body. Grab a hold of that. But it will still be my body. It will have resemblance to this fragile and weak body. Follow along with me in verse 36 through 38. Going back there, 36. How foolish, you fool. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he's determined to each kind of seed. He gives its own body. You see what this is saying? The seed analogy here speaks to the fact that as we're resurrected with new bodies, there's going to be a likeness, a connection, a continuity between the body that dies and the new body we will be given at the resurrection. All you have to do is look at Jesus and his resurrection, his glorified body. See, when you plant a wheat seed, you don't get a barley plant. The seed analogy also speaks to the fact that there's a difference in that the plant is more beautiful than the seed. The great transformation, loved ones, means that our bodies will be greater and more wonderful than what they are now. Why? Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is our hope. That is our hope. Perhaps you're here this morning, you could care less about what happens to your body after you're dead. You're just hoping to find enough duct tape and painkillers to keep this thing running now. (laughs) You may wonder why all the fuss over arms and legs and and all these body parts. uh, While on one hand, there is this unhealthy preoccupation with the body, we shouldn't go to the other extreme and neglect the care of our bodies. I think at times we downplay the significance of the body. God speaks of our body being bought with a price and that we are to glorify God, how? In our bodies. An aspect of God's redemption is to be glorified in our body forever and ever. The body is something that will be with us throughout eternity in a changed and transformed way. God will not desert the body. Just as God created us whole, he redeemed us as a whole body and spirit. You see, our ultimate hope is not when we die. 
Now, if you're still with me and you're still awake this morning, you might consider that statement slightly off. Hear me out. To die is gain, Paul says. To be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. Yes, that is true. But Paul goes to great lengths here to speak of our ultimate hope. It is the resurrection of our bodies. Our greatest joy will be to be with the risen Christ, with a body like his glorious body, with eyes, ears, hands, and so on. There will be a day when when, when bodies will come out of the grave and be transformed into glorified bodies. And you might be thinking, wow, that's going to be cool watching that and see myself change. We kind of envision it's going to be kind of like the Incredible Hulk. Now, if you've never seen the Incredible Hulk, be thankful. <laughs> You're not sure we're really going to get to enjoy that. It's going to be so fast, we won't even realize it. Look down at verse 51. 51. Listen, I tell you a mystery. This is to say that what was hidden in the past is now revealed. He goes on. We will not all sleep because some will be alive when Jesus comes. That's what he's saying. We will not all sleep, but whether we're alive or, or six feet under or, or spread across the sea, he says, we will all be what? Changed. We will not all sleep. We will all be changed. I remember once seeing that verse posted in a church nursery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. <laughs> Paul meant a little bit more than changing diapers. Notice how fast this occurs, though. It says in verse 52, in a flash, in a flash. Or some would translate, in a moment. How fast is a flash or a moment? Well, the Greek word for moment suggests the smallest possible particle which could not be divided. It is the word from which we get our word atom, A-T-O-M. In the smallest amount of time, of which there is no smaller, we will be changed. And just to keep help you realize how fast it's going to be, he says it's going to be in the twinkling of an eye. Now, twinkling, folks, is not blinking. Even faster than that. The twinkling has been described as the time it takes for the light to go from the iris of the eye to the retina, which has been measured and said that it is one-sixth of a nanosecond. Whatever a nanosecond is, it's something like one-thousandth of one-millionth of a second. Now, it just kind of gives me a headache thinking about that. God has a wonderful new body planned for us that will not be limited. It will not be dishonorable. It will not be weak. It will not be victimized, but instead one specially formed with heavenly capacities. We will be like Christ in his resurrection with our resurrected bodies. Now, unless I miss my guess, that means we'll appear and disappear. We'll go through walls. We will eat. Yes, Baptists, we will eat. We will be understood. We will zoom across the universe. We'll use the full capacities of our brain and creative abilities. I mean, there's no stopping as I start to think about what it's going to be like, what heaven's going to be like. There's so much we don't know about what it will be like and can only wonder. 
Like one seven-year-old had this to say about heaven and heaven, I won't have to do any more homework. (laughs) Then he added, unless my teacher's there too. (laughs) Hopefully his teacher is there. One thing we know is there's going to be a great transformation of these earthly bodies. Why? Because Christ is risen. He goes on, second movement. The great triumph. The great triumph. We pick it up in verse 54. And in this, here, what we're going to see is we're going to see two key words followed by two images. When and then are the two key words here. Follow along as I read verse 54. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with the immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. In other words, when the great transformation occurs, then comes the great triumph. And Paul then uses two images to highlight this great triumph, swallowing and getting stung. The end of verse 54 says, death has been swallowed up in victory. In verse 56, Paul uses the second image. The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. Listen, we know it. Death does sting. It still hurts. We ought to understand the great triumph. We must first understand the tremendous grip that death has over us. Death still violates us. It still pounces on the young and the old. It still can hit us with a tremendous blow. Why? Because it's not yet swallowed up. But we know that death is not final. The sting of death will someday be removed forever because our sin has been paid for and forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ. A small, frail girl sat playing in a room when she heard a noise of something that could bring her almost instant death. She had been stung by a, a bee at an early age and had almost died. One more sting could mean her death. At the sound of the the bee's buzz, a wave of distress came over and she began to sob and cry out for help. And and immediately, her dad came rushing into the room. And after quickly looking about the room, he found the cause of her trouble. And and with one quick sweep, he, he snatched the bee out of the air and held it in his hands. He then released the the bee into the air. With an audible gasp, His daughter looked up at her dad and asked, why would he release the bee since it could mean her death if it should sting her? And he said to her, don't be afraid, my child. See, here in my hand, here is the stinger that could harm you. I've taken the sting for you, and now it cannot hurt you, and so soon the bee itself will die. We all suffer under the curse of sin, like the little girl from the first sting. And the next sting could mean our ultimate demise. But Christ took the sting for us. And we no longer have to fear death. For the believer, death can buzz around. It annoys us greatly. But it can't permanently sting us because Jesus took the sting. You're trusting in yourself. You're hoping your good deeds will outweigh your bad deeds, and you've given death the right to give you the right to sting you with a fatal blow. 
No matter how small you may view your sin or, or, or by your own comparison to others, you figure you're not so bad. Your sin just the same as the thing that gives death its sting. I do not have the ability, I do not have the power to remove the sting of death myself. I cannot do anything about the consequences of violating God's holy standard of righteousness. No, but as verse 57 puts it, thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The only way the sting can be removed is by trusting in Jesus who paid the penalty of our sin. Jesus died in order to take for you and me the sting. He eliminated that sting through his death. And death is then swallowed up. Why? Because he rose from the dead. Christ is the one who causes us to have victory. It is then. It is then that we can taunt death. That's what this is, really. We can taunt death by saying, as verse 55 puts it, where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? Will you be able to say that? Will you be able to celebrate the life God has given you eternally? What do you have looked forward to beyond death? Because, because Christ is risen in an instant, the dead will rise and those who are alive when he comes will be transformed. I mean, there you are in the treadmill at the gym trying to care for your body and boom, you're in a place where there's no more medicine cabinets, no funerals, no doctors. We don't even need health coverage. Praise God. We'll never see a wheelchair crutches again. The great triumph. We wait for that beautiful day. The end in view. We've been soaring into the future, looking at the end in view. We now come to the here and now because this passage answers in no uncertain terms what we are to do while we wait for that glorious day. The great transformation, movement number one. The great triumph, movement number two. We now come to the third movement, the great therefore. The great therefore, if it is true that Christ is risen, if it is true that all this awaits us, if it is true that we're going to have new, incorruptible bodies, if it is true that we're going to live together forever, if it is true that we look forward not just to an event but more so to a person, if it is true, that there's an eternal kingdom and that this life is passing. Verse 58, therefore, therefore, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Brothers and sisters of Christ, First Baptist Church of Westerlo, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Christ is risen. Nothing move you. Those are excellent words for us while we wait. When you're sick, let nothing move you. When a loved one dies, let nothing move you. When there's, when there's a miscarriage or a chronic pain or mental illness or a car wreck, let nothing move you. As in those times, all resulting from a sin-cursed world with people who are sinful, we might say, God, I thought you were good. 
Let nothing move you. Don't doubt the goodness of God. Trust him until we see him. Stand firm. And if you're wondering, what should we do with our days? We have the answer right here. If you desire to know God's will for your life, the answer is right here. Stand firm, he says. Not stand still. Stand firm. The verse goes on. Verse 58. Always give yourselves, always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, or better translated, go all out in your work for the Lord. Or better translated, go over the top in your work for the Lord. Overdo it for the Lord. He overdid it for you. Super abound in the work of, a, of, of, of the Lord. Don't know how strong to say this. Put your all into it, he's saying. As Jim Elliott expressed, wherever you are, be all there. Live to the hilt every situation you believe to be the will of God. Why? The end of the verse 58 nails it. It says, because you know, underline this, you know. What do we know? That your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Do you need to hear that this morning? All because Christ is risen. Your work for God is not in vain. Do you believe that? A time when you had so much to do, yet you visited the shut-in? Not in vain. The time when you were white, but you still had someone over for dinner? Not in vain. The time when you sat by that person who just wept all over the place, not in vain. Those times you, you, you faithfully taught your class or you, you set up chairs in the room or you passed out flyers or you, or you gave some time to listen to someone, a friend, or, or to write that note or to disciple that new believer or to set up refreshments or to watch two-year-olds, not in vain. That's what it says. Not one second ever spent serving Christ is wasted. Not one cent ever spent for the kingdom is wasted. Not one act ever spent for him is wasted. Why? Because Christ is risen. Death is not final. And because of that, life is not futile. It's not. So at the end of our day, we ought to pause and ask What did I say today that will matter for eternity? What did I do today that will matter for eternity? Did I work today in such a way that will matter for eternity? Did I use my mind in such a way that will matter for eternity? Did I do my best in everything today because that will matter in eternity? For Jesus says if you're faithful in little things here on earth, you'll be trusted with much in heaven. Did you live with eternal perspective today. Because in this world, we do suffer. Our bodies don't always work the way we would like. There are viruses and cancer and pain and accidents. There's a new body coming, loved ones, in a new home where there's no bickering, no sibling rivalry, no messing up, no deadlines, no long sermons to endure. Just thought I'd throw that in there. I'm out of a job when we get up there. I'll have plenty to do. While we wait, we work for him because everything done for him has eternal consequences. It is not in vain because Christ is risen. Death is not final 
Life is not futile. And so the time, the time to really live is now. The time to invest in others, now. Not tomorrow, not someday. We don't know how much time we have. The time to to give yourself to God's kingdom is now. The time to build into your kids' lives is now. Because opportunities cease at death. Now is all we have. Begin with the end in view. As many of you know, my wife and my 10-year-old recently went away for a month. No, actually, it seemed like a month. It was only a week. <laughs> I, do, I soon discovered that the bachelor life is not for me. I work and snack way too much. I look forward to them returning. And do you know what happened? Do you know what happened the day I knew my wife was returning? Every man in this room knows what happens. <laughs> All kids know when their parents are coming back what happens. I cleaned up. I straightened things out. I did the dishes. Thought I might run out of them, but I didn't. I did the dishes. I threw some things away that were in the fridge. Why? She was returning. I knew she was coming back. Christ is risen, which means he is alive, which means he is returning, which means he's coming back. And you know, sometimes I live as if Christ was never going to come back. I sometimes live as if this life is all there is. How foolish. If we knew the exact day of Christ's return, would we do some last-minute scrambling? Gotta clean up. Gotta do this. Let's keep the end in view because we don't know the time. Let's keep the end in view and begin now to live like this is the last day. When we really live in the light of the resurrection, it changes everything. The way we are, the way we think, the way we approach life, the way we serve, the way we prioritize. Believer, there will be for you a great transformation. There will be for you the great triumph. Let me ask you, is there a great therefore in your life? Is there a great therefore? In your life, because death is not final, life is not futile. Begin with the end in view. Church, Christ is risen from the dead. It's a call for the church to come awake, to come awake. That's the note we're going to end on this morning. May the praise team come up again. Christ is risen from the dead. He's risen from the dead. Come awake. Now is the time that we have. There ought to be a great therefore in our lives. Let me pray, and then we'll sing this closing song with triumphant, with victory in our hearts. God, we thank you. We thank you for the great transformation that is to come. Why? Because Christ is risen. We thank you for the great triumph that is to come. Why? Because Christ is risen. Oh, may it not stop there in my life. In our lives here, may there be a great therefore. 
Why? Because Christ is risen. The same truth that ought to motivate us every single day to make the most of the opportunities we have. Ah, There's a call right now for the church to come awake. This is it. We don't know how much time we have. God, show us. Show us how important the now is. May we come awake as we sing with great victory in our hearts. Christ is risen from the dead. Christ's name, amen. Let's stand and sing the song together.